Uh, if you have not met me before or I've not gotten to meet you, my name is Alex McKay, and I am the pastor of college discipleship here at our Harris campus. So I don't too often get to be up here with you guys. I'm usually helping out Pastor Jacob down in the basement with student ministry on Wednesday nights, but every time I am here, it's, it's definitely a pleasure. So we're about uh, to get started here. I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time tonight that we can come together as the body of Christ, that we can learn together, that we can study together, that your spirit is present and indwelling us, inclining our hearts uh, and our minds. Uh, I pray that you would be with us, that you would give me words to speak, that it would be applicable to the people here, and that we would use it to apply it to our lives, that we would be better disciples of Christ, and that we would glorify him with our lives. And it's in the matchless name of Christ that I pray. Amen. Well, as you can see, we have quite an interesting topic tonight for our discussion. One way that we might think about this topic is underneath the category of spiritual warfare. Uh, it's something that some people might give little attention to, something that some people might give um, too much attention to, something that somebody might not even know what that term means or how we might think about it. I think there are two extremes when it comes to the topic of spiritual warfare. As I said, there are some that probably give uh, spiritual warfare too much power, meaning that they see Satan as this superpower, and God and Satan are at odds, and we're sitting on the edge of our seats waiting to see who's going to win, as if God does not have authority and all power over Satan. So that's one extreme. But then there's another extreme, which might uh, be some of us here, where we don't really think in terms of spiritual warfare. We don't think that Satan really has any power or any influence over the world around us. So we pretty much live our lives indifferent towards Satan and his schemes in the world. But there is, as the Bible tells us, a real enemy against us as the church, as the body of Christ. The Bible would actually classify Satan's attacks against us as flaming darts of the evil one. And the way that the Bible presents Satan in his schemes it actually says that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He's deceptive. He's deceitful in his attacks against us. And actually, in Satan's, uh, basically, his plan against humanity and against God's glory, from the very beginning in Genesis 3, that was his primary tactic. In Genesis 3, we see Satan as the deceiver, as the liar, and that's probably how we can think about his primary goal and his task to disrupt the plans of God as a deceiver. And so Satan works in two ways. And what we want to look at tonight, again, like I said earlier, to give a broad overview of what we'll be looking at in the weeks to come, is the difference between cults and the occult. And so what Satan does is he works in these two separate ways. As he deceives those even within the church, outside of the church, he sows seeds of dissension and lies and so with cults, cults are usually going to operate in a way that looks a lot like Christianity because it's deceptive. It's not something that's clear and in your face. It's something that can lead people astray. Oftentimes, we like to think that Satan, uh, in his temptations of us, he's going to dangle something that is clearly sin, which it can be the case, but a lot of times it's more subtle. It's something that maybe lulls us to sleep into sin. So cults are going to look a lot like Christianity, whereas we think about the occult, that's going to be a little bit more of what we might think of as kind of demonic things or very dark, very evil looking from a front. And yet they still have a power to deceive those who interact with them in some ways. And we'll talk more about that as we go through um, the notes tonight. So let's jump right in looking at cults or even sex or uh, maybe 
types of cults. So what we want to do is think about why this is important to us. And one of the reasons that I think this is an important topic for us to look at is because, as I said, a lot of this is deceit. A lot of it is deceptful in how we interact with it. And so there are ways that what we'll talk about tonight with these different cults can influence even the church. It can influence the way we might think about what we know to be true, as well as it can influence what other people might think to be true. And so what we want to do is give you markers of how you can see what a cult is, or maybe what the makeup of a cult is, or what are some alarm bells or red flags that might tip you off to see this is a cult. So we'll walk through a few of these here. The first marker that we want to bring to mind is that usually a cult is going to claim to be Christian. So oftentimes a cult is not going to be blatantly uh, against anything Christianity necessarily says. So that's why we wouldn't classify uh, the Islamic religion as necessarily a cult. We just see it as a separate religion uh, because they're not claiming to be Christians. They're very distinct in how they hold themselves and what they claim to be. However, cults are going to be more deceptive. They're going to claim to be Christian. Or maybe they're going to claim to be a truer form of Christianity. Or maybe they're going to be um, the ones that have the true truth or whatever that may be. But they're still going to claim to be Christian. Another marker of a cult is that they're usually going to deny core doctrine, core doctrine. And this is important, and this is important for us to think through as well as to how we differ with people that we might disagree with. If any of you have recently gone through the Discover HG class, you might uh, remember how in that class, when we talk about what we believe at Hickory Grove, the way that we uh, determine how we see other people that disagree is we use the term theological triage. And it's an analogy that helps us understand really the term the triage, which if you think of triage, you think of a medical environment. If two people come into an ER, one person with a gunshot wound and one person with a paper cut, you're obviously going to rush to help the person with the gunshot wound. You're going to triage those people and decide and determine which person is more important to take care of. And when we use the term theological triage, we're kind of applying the same thing. What are the things that we can't disagree on, and what are the things that we can disagree on? So oftentimes, we think of it in tiers. There are first-tier doctrines, second-tier doctrines, and third-tier doctrines. First-tier doctrines are going to be things that you cannot disagree with and still be considered a Christian. These are going to be things like the deity of Christ. Is Jesus Christ truly God? These are also going to be things such as the Trinity. Uh, some people that would believe there is no Trinity. We would see that as a first-tier doctrine and disagree with them and say, we do not see you as a brother or a sister in Christ. But second-tier doctrines are going to be things that we might disagree with, and though we still see them as brothers and sisters in Christ, we hold to these core first-tier doctrines, but we, we wouldn't be able to agree with them on certain things where it wouldn't make operating in the same church environment conducive. So, for example, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. There are many Presbyterian churches here in Charlotte that preach the gospel, that hold to the authority of Scripture, and that faithfully serve and worship Jesus Christ. But we would disagree with them on the matters of baptism and other church matters to where, though we don't see them as non-Christians, we just wouldn't be able to operate in a Baptist church with them because we would disagree on the matters of baptism. And then third-tier doctrine would be things such as uh, eschatology or the end times. We can disagree on some of those matters and still operate within a church environment. So I give you that to think through then how we operate when it comes to cults. 
So usually the cult is going to deny core doctrines, meaning they disagree with us on those first tier doctrines. They're going to say that they don't view Christ as Lord and Savior. They don't see him as truly God, things like that. So they're going to disagree with us on core doctrines. Another marker of a cult is that they usually take the Bible out of context. And so what happens with this is oftentimes a cult is going to either misquote the Bible or maybe even mistranslate the Bible. So Jehovah Witnesses actually uh, do this with their Bible translation, where in John 1, they mistranslate the original manuscripts of Greek. And John, they say, instead of, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, they translate that to be the Word was a God. They add the word a there, which you don't have to be an English scholar to see how that changes what that phrase is trying to say about the Word, about Jesus. So these cults are going to take it out of context. Another example of this is with uh, Mormons. So Joseph Smith, he read in Ezekiel where it talks about the staff of Judah and the staff of Joseph. And he saw that to mean the staff of Judah is clearly talking about the Bible as the way that people understand Revelation. But the staff of Joseph, my name's Joseph, so that's about me. And so he takes that and he misapplies it to be talking about him and him getting revelation from God. So he's taking that out of context. Obviously, within the context of Ezekiel, that passage is not talking about Joseph Smith, who would be born several thousands years later. That was talking about Israel. So cults are going to take the Bible out of context. They're going to misapply God's word. And so as you see, they're starting to build a little bit of uh, a pattern here. They claim to be Christian, yet they deny core doctrines. They take the Bible out of context. So already they have shaky ground when it comes to their authority on Scripture. They're going to see a, the authority as in something else. They're not going to see Scripture as authority, which leads us to our next marker, which is that cults are usually going to claim to be led by divinely inspired leaders. So a lot of time, these leaders are going to be very charismatic leaders, but it's not just that they're charismatic leaders and they have a lot of people following them, but that they claim to be divinely inspired. Again, they're going to take issue with the authority of God's word, and they're going to say, no, me as the leader, I have some divine revelation. I have the inspiration from God, and they're going to lead people underneath that authority in themselves. So this is going to look like several of the cults that we'll look at. Their leaders, uh, Joseph Smith with the Mormons, as well as Brigham Young, his counterpart. Uh, Mary Baker Eddy, who founded Christian Science, she also claimed to be divinely inspired. You even have uh, some other areas, some other cults that you might be aware of, like David Koresh out in Waco, Texas. He claimed to be divinely inspired and that he had a word from the Lord. You also have people like Jim Jones, Charles Manson. These are people that claim to have some sort of divine revelation and people believe them, and they leave the authority of God's word behind, and they follow these people as if they have authority in their words. And Paul actually warns against this when he talks about people that claim to follow Apollos or claim to follow Paul, and he says, no, we follow Christ. And the same for us. We want to make sure that our authority is not in one person, but rather in God and his word. So long after Pastor Clint, Pastor Kyler, myself, and Hickory Grove are long gone, the church of Jesus Christ will still stand because it's not built on any one person. It's built on Jesus Christ. So another marker, if all of those markers are true, what usually ends up happening is they will also usually add 
or subtract from the Bible. So similar to how they take the Bible out of context, if they've already pulled the authority from God's word away and put it in a person, they will add to the words of scripture. A lot of times this will look similar to what you might imagine the Jefferson Bible, Thomas Jefferson. He took the Bible and he said, I don't like these parts, so I'm gonna cut that out. And I don't like that part, so I'm gonna cut that out. And next thing you know, he had a Bible completely comprised of all the parts that he liked and it didn't have any of the parts that he didn't like. So that's what these cults will oftentimes do. Um, the Book of Mormon is one that has added to God's word as a new revelation. We also uh, see this in a more, um, as, we're talk as we're thinking about deceitful and, and how this is usually um, not easily seen, I think we see this happen in what could be classified as a cult, which is more progressive churches where they seem to distance themselves from the authority of the Bible. And any time that happens, that should be a red flag. Again, these are churches that claim to be Christian. They might even be led by a charismatic leader. And what happens is they start to say, well, you don't really need the Old Testament. The Old Testament isn't, it's not really relevant for us. And honestly, it's, it probably has some errors in it. So we can unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Or maybe they're trying to say, uh, it sounds like Paul and Jesus, they weren't really on the same page, so you don't need to listen to Paul's words. I just want to listen to Jesus' words. Anytime somebody is trying to lead us away from God's word and away from scripture, that should be a red flag. And that's also usually one of the, um, the marks of a cult. And lastly, and similar to uh, what I said previously, usually the cults are going to claim to be the only true or even the most true church. So they, they might even say that they're the true fulfillment of the church. This happens a lot of times if you're familiar with the group Hebrew Israelites. They claim that the 12 tribes of Israel were lost to history and that the tribes that we know or think we know are actually made up and false and that they claim to be the true tribes of Israel. They're the true fulfillment of all the prophecies. Oftentimes, these cults are going to be not only claiming to be Christian, but the truer Christian or the truest Christian. Somehow they have more truth than we have, and we need to follow their truth. So those are going to be markers, hopefully things that we can take to mind and see if we ever do actually interact with somebody that holds to one of these cultic practices. So now, then I want to transition to looking at examples of cults, examples of uh, these groups that would actually have some, if not all, of these markers present in them. Now, I do want to say on the front end, some of these uh, you might have experience with, either from somebody that has showed up on your doorstep, maybe somebody you know, maybe even a family member, or may you, maybe you yourself have interacted with this in some way, shape, or form. Uh, if you have questions about these after, please come to me or any of the other pastors, as well as, like I said, the next few weeks we'll be looking at these in depth as well. So let's start with Jehovah's Witnesses, probably one of the more well-known ones. You'll see them a lot of times standing on the side of a street with a kind of pop-up information booth. They'll talk to people as they go by. Jehovah Witnesses were started by uh, Charles Taze Russell. So they have that charismatic leader who also claimed to be divinely inspired. And Jehovah Witnesses have a rather deceitful way, deceitful way that they uh, lead people astray by way of their version of the Bible. They call it the New World Translation. And now how many of us have heard of the New Living Translation? Some of us might even use it. So if somebody says, oh, well, I have the New World Translation, it can be very easy to conflate that with any of the other translations of the Bible that we may have. 
And so what they do is they go back and they have many places where they claim that they've been divinely inspired to retranslate the Bible into their version. So obviously they not only take the Bible out of context, but they add to it and they are um, they're claiming to be Christian, the true church, the true establishment of the church. Moving on, you have Mormonism. So Mormonism obviously is another one where we're probably familiar with it or have had some sort of interaction with it. You might have even had one of them uh, come up to your house uh, riding a bicycle with a white t-shirt, black tie, knock on the door and try to talk to you for hours on end. Mormons were started by Joseph Smith who actually had a falling out with the church before he went off and then after his time in the wilderness said that he had a divine revelation from God that he was to retranslate the original tablets that were given to him, and he was to give this new revelation, which ended up becoming the Book of Mormon. So they've added to the Bible in that way. Then we have Christian science, which I won't go too in-depth there because, honestly, it's pretty convoluted. Uh, and yet, we have another one that was started by a charismatic leader who claimed to be divinely inspired. So Mary Baker Eddy is the one who had these divine inspirations of a new version of Christianity. Um, a lot of people can get tripped up with this when it comes to medicine and, and more holistic ways of healing and things like that. Um, so Mary Baker Eddy, the leader that led there. And then we have one that you might not know about, but I'm sure that you have heard of or at least have some sort of interactions with, which is oneness Pentecostalism. Now let me be clear on this one. We're not saying that all Pentecostals fall into this. This is a specific part of Pentecostalism where they hold to um, a doctrine that they disagree with the Trinity. The oneness there is saying that God is only in one form. So oneness being one. They don't believe that there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They would believe that God just exists in these different forms at different times, the different manifestations, if you will. Um, now, this is one where you might not have heard of that term, but you have probably heard of someone who holds true to the core tenets of oneness Pentecostalism. Has anybody ever heard of the pastor T.D. Jakes? So a few of you. So T.D. Jakes, a prominent pastor out in Texas, has written a multitude of books. You might have even been introduced to his books, has, I'm sure, a podcast and shows that he does. He's very influential uh, in the evangelical world. In fact, he has come to Charlotte and preached at a specific church here in Charlotte on multiple fronts that's large and very influential itself. This is someone who goes around teaching some of these doctrines rather subversively where people don't understand what he's teaching and ultimately he's leading them away from what the Bible would preach. Another uh, cult, which um, this one you can even put an asterisk by and they'll go more into detail on this one when we get to it on Wednesday night. You could even say maybe if, if cult is too harsh of a word, you could say a sect. Um, now, it, this, is, this is me and my opinion. I do believe, though, Seventh-day Adventism, uh, Seventh-day Adventists, they do have the marks that we just laid out for cults. So I, I would classify it as a cult, and uh, let me explain why. So Seventh-day Adventism, when it was uh, birthed, it was birthed by Ellen G. White and some counterparts of hers. Ellen G. White claimed to be a prophetess. She claimed to have divine inspiration. She made a lot of prophecies that have not come true and have had to be amended since her passing. 
And so uh, this one is a little bit more um, deceptive as well because it does hold to some of, I would say, the moral teachings that we as Christians would also hold to. So they would see abortion as wrong. They would say that sex is to be for uh, a married couple within the confines of a covenant uh, between a male and a female. They would hold to generally a lot of the moral principles that we as Christians would as well. But what they also believe is in annihilationism. So they would claim that after the final judgment, all those who have gone uh, to hell, they would just be annihilated. They cease to exist. There's no eternal punishment. You just disappear. They also believe in a very legalistic uh, view of salvation. So we have to live a certain way according to these moral laws in order to obtain salvation. So they're going to place salvation on the means of works rather than faith in Christ. And the reason why I also think this one is a little bit more deceptive is because there are a lot of prominent people that hold to Seventh-day Adventism that we might not even realize. A prominent name, someone who is a very famous medical doctor who also ran for president, is a Seventh-day Adventist. Ben Carson, if you know the name, Ben Carson is a known Seventh-day Adventist. And within that, I think that's telling that somebody who ran for president, at least it didn't seem that his uh, faith ever came to the forefront of discussion or debate. So I think Seventh-day Adventism falls because of the marks into the category of cult uh, because of what they believe. And the last one here, I won't spend a whole lot of time on it, but the Unity School of Christianity, it's, uh, it's started here in America. It's actually headquarters in Kansas City, Missouri, and it's actually rather similar to Christian science. So we'll learn more about that later on. So I don't want to just run down a list of cults and then move on. I want us to also see how we should think about this, why we should take this seriously, and furthermore, what does the Bible have to say about some of these things that these cults would teach and have us believe? So I have a long list here of scripture passages just to kind of give us insight to what God's word says. Jesus himself warned against all these different cults, and he's pointing us to uh, beware in Matthew 7, verses 15 to 23, where he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. So he's saying they look like the sheep. They look like the sheep of the flock, but, as the verse goes on, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And then he says in verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. So he's saying, look how they act. Look how they talk. Look what they believe. That's how you know who is truly part of the flock and who is false. Furthermore, in that passage of Matthew chapter 7, some of the most uh, I think, frightening verses in all the Bible. In verse 21, where it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then he says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here Jesus lays a very heavy condemnation on cults, people that claim to know Christ, claim to follow Christ, but they deny core doctrines of what the Bible upholds. They deny Christ in his divinity or his saviorship or his kingliness. All these ways that these cults say they follow Christ, but they ultimately don't, and it's to their destruction. Paul also warned against them in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 through 15, where he says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, meaning that they might not easily be seen. They're deceitful in their tactics, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And then he equates it to Satan himself. He says in verse 14, and no wonder, 
For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, meaning that it's not obvious to see what Satan is doing sometimes. In verse 15, he says, So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And then he says, Their end will correspond to their deeds. So their wicked deeds will bring destruction upon them. John warned against them in 1 John 4 and 2 John 1. 1 John 4, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. So he's actually telling us when you hear something, test it. Test it to what? We test it to God's word. The illustration that often gets used, uh, and it might be overused, so apologies, but um, how do we spot a counterfeit dollar bill? Well, those who are trying to protect against counterfeit bills, they don't go out and try and study all the ways that you could counterfeit it, because there are millions of ways. But what they do is they study the original dollar bill, so they know it frontwards and backwards, every small detail about it, so that when they see a counterfeit, they know that's not it. And so the same way we as Christians, we need to know God. We need to know Christ. And the way that we do that is to we, we study his word. He has revealed himself through his word, and so we need to know it. I don't get paid on commission for how many people read the Bible through in a year. I want you to read the Bible through in a year so that you can be aware and you can be equipped to defend yourself against the schemes of Satan because he is deceitful. He's very tactical in the way that he tries to subvert the Christian life. And then in Peter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Peter says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. These things are not to be taken lightly. They're to be taken very seriously, and we need to be on guard. Ezekiel from the Old Testament also does. He actually mentions these type of women who sew magic bands together, and then the Lord pronounces judgment against them for making these magic bands. And he says, no more will you practice divination and take part in these evil and wicked deeds. And Jude also gives a final warning where he says to contend for the faith, So we fight for it. We defend it. Contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And he says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. They're deceitful. We need to be discerning. So those, uh, that's an overview of cults, how we would understand it, markers of cults, and even what scripture says about these cults. So I want to then move into the occult, which you're going to see there's going to be some overlap. Some might apply to each one but we do see them as distinctly different. And even the word occult basically means hidden or concealed. So it's still this idea of deception. And one of the notable marks of the occult is this pursuit of secret knowledge, which goes with the title, this this, uh, concealment or this hidden knowledge to be gained. Uh, If you know church history well, you'll know that the Gnostics were some of the earliest church heretics. And they claimed that they had some secret revelation or some secret knowledge to be gained that other Christians didn't have. So these, uh, these that practice things in the occult are always going to somehow claim this secret knowledge or something that you might not know and you need to come over here because I know it. I have a special revelation and you don't. So you can even see there where there's some overlaps with cults and the occult. But another way that occults might distinguish themselves is that they explore power other than God. Now, power in and of itself is not a wrong thing to understand or to learn about. We as Christians, we we pray for the Lord to demonstrate his power around us. We sing about God's power. We see the power of Christ in uh, the gospel. So power in and of itself is wrong, but all of those avenues lead us to worship 
God, whereas the occult is going to explore powers outside of God. They want some sort of secret power or a power that they themselves can hold and use. They're obsessed with power. It's this, even this knowledge of the world of like the paranormal and how we can wield that to our advantage. So they explore power other than God. They're gonna look for it outside of God. Another way that the occults will mark themselves is that they'll equate truth with mythology. They'll say that whatever you claim to be true, that's a lie. It's not actually true. It might at very least be a fairy tale, and at very worst, it's a, it's a straight lie. And this should, again, this should make you think back to Satan's scheme of deception. It should make you think back to his temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden, which was, did God really say that? Is what you're saying to be true really the truth? In fact, I have something that you don't know, and God is trying to withhold that. That's Satan's scheme. That's Satan's lie. So the occult is going to equate what we believe as truth to mythology. And then lastly, the way that the occult will distinguish itself from cults is that the occult will deny Jesus Christ, either outright or through their practices. In some way, you can even write that the occult is anti-Christ. It is the antithesis of Jesus Christ. They will deny Christ and his deity and his power and the gospel. So what are some examples of the occult? Um, there are going to be a few major categories with some subcategories. So the first major category is divination. And this is basically when you're foretelling future events through uh, different means and methods. Uh, they're going to be claimed as supernatural means and supernatural methods. Um, these are going to be ones that are probably we, we've heard of, we've experienced in some sort of way or We've seen through some sort of media form, like a movie or TV show or even a, a book. And the first one is astrology, one that I'm sure you're familiar with. Familiar with. This is interpreting uh, the influence of the stars and the planets and how that has an influence on people. And so particularly, we'll use horoscopes to be able to determine that. And that's where you'll, you'll have these bands of stars and their placement in the night sky. Uh, it will be classified as a certain animal or a certain uh, creature. So, you know, you have, I, I really don't know all of them, but like Leo and uh, Pisces and Taurus and all the, other, um, all the other constellations that they see. And, and they look at those, and wherever their placement is in the sky at a certain time of day, at a certain time of year, then that means something about you. So if you were born in a certain month to where you're uh, Leo, um, and then it's placed in the sky at this time, that means that you have good fortune coming your way or that you uh, have a certain type of personality because of that, um, which you can see how that can get people into trouble um, where they start to say things and they're like, oh, well, you know, uh, I don't have a gambling problem. I'm, I'm just a Leo. It's like, no, you're making excuses. You, you have a serious problem that you need to deal with. Um, another way that we see divination played out is through crystal gazing. So the use of a crystal ball uh, or occasionally even a mirror or a pool or um, something that they can see their reflection in, and they, they gaze into it to be able to predict the future. So as, as I said that, you're probably coming to mind um, a certain phrase, mirror, mirror on the wall. That wasn't just something that the writers of Snow White just randomly came up with to fit their narrative, that was something they pulled from an occult practice. That was something that's been in existence for many, many years where people would gaze into these things 
And they gaze into it so long that they go into a trance. And then either they'd say something about your future or say something that's going to happen and they would predict what's to come. Now that's not my um, attack against Disney or Snow White. If you like Snow White, that's fine. I'm not saying it's evil. But that is an occult practice, to stare into a mirror to predict the future. Another one that you might be familiar with is a Ouija board. And this is actually initially a game that was invented in 1892 by William Fold. And it's actually a game that you could buy at the store. It's sold by Parker Brothers. You can find it on Amazon and buy it. But it's oftentimes used in the occult by the way that people will ask questions and get answers in a seance where they, they try to talk to the dead, essentially. And it's a board that you lay out, and there's a uh, little wooden object. And on the board, it has different numbers, and it has uh, the alphabet, and it even has like some um, questions or answers, and it says yes or no or hello or goodbye. And you and whoever else will move this piece around, and it will highlight certain things. It will spell out certain things uh, as if you were talking to the dead. You ask them questions, and then they'll spell out their answer to you. Um, so you might have seen this in movie or TV shows. It's rather prominent, and even to the fact that it's just a board game that you can buy at the store, it's rather prominent in our culture. Another one, uh, a part of divination, is palm reading. So palm reading is where you're determining a person's future by examining the lines on their hands. So they'll look at the way a line moves or whether it's long or short, and that will determine something. So if you have a long line here, then it means you'll have a long life. If you have a short line there, not so much. Um, I feel like when I was younger, I used to see the lines in my hand and it looked like an M and I was like, well, that makes sense. My last name's McKay. So until I saw my friend's hands and it's like, oh wait, that looks like an M too and, and that too and that, they're just lines. So palm reading, it's one I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, what the lines are on your hand also dictate your personality, what relationships you'll have, things like that. Another one is tarot cards. So this is a fortune telling that involves a deck of cards, which again, this ended up actually originally just being a card game. But these cards depicted uh, very particular and even kind of scary uh, either people or events. So it might have an angel on one, but it might have an angel of death on the other. It might have a bountiful food harvest on one, and it might have a famine on the other. And what would happen is you'd shuffle these cards, you'd lay them face down, you'd choose a few of them, and then as you flip them over, that's going to determine your future. So if you draw the bountiful food harvest, that's great for the next year, I guess, and then if you draw the angel of death after that, it's only going to last about a year. So they would read their future based on what cards you draw out. And then lastly is uh, tea leaves. Um, this is where you would put tea leaves into a cup, you drink your tea, and then after you drink all the tea, wherever the tea leaves kind of laid into the cup and you'd read the lines between the tea leaves, you'd basically be able to determine, again, your future. So if the tea leaves kind of showed this figure, then that would mean that something ominous is in your future, or good, whichever it may be with the tea leaves. So as you can see, a lot of these are pretty prominent in culture. You, it, it, maybe you don't personally uh, involve yourself with them, but you probably have seen it in movies or TV shows, read it in a book, like I said. And all of these really fall to essentially random chance, where the tea leaves fall, or what the lines on your hand are like, or when you go check the horoscope, where the stars are just happening to be at in the night sky. All of these really fall to random chance. And I think the reason why this can be dangerous is because this actually does influence the church in some pretty submersive ways. I don't, um, I don't know if you have ever done this or a friend where they're driving down the road and they look up in the sky and they see the clouds a certain way and they kind of smile and they say, God told me to do this because look at the clouds. 
it, you know, it looks like a dollar bill, so I need, I need to buy that new car. Uh, or like, you know, Lord, give me a sign. What do I need to eat? Subway on the billboard. That was God telling me that I need to go eat at Subway. So there are a lot of ways that we might not even knowingly take some of these things that are in the occult practice and apply them to Christianity. And it's, in, in a well-meaning way, I think a lot of times these things are done, these divination-type um, exercises are done for people who are desperate, for people who are hurting, and for people who they, they want some sort of hope. They had a, a loved one pass away, and they want to hear from them again. Or they, they really don't know how they're going to make ends meet, and they want to know if this is a right decision for them. And so a lot of times, these different occult practices prey on people that really need help. They need a true sense of hope. And so we as Christians, we don't have to look at the clouds and the billboards and definitely not the tea leaves or anything else to determine God's will. We have that for us revealed in his word. And so we can test these things with God's word and scripture. So another uh, form of the occult is spiritualism. And this is kind of a broad term, but this is basically uh, the belief that the dead can communicate with the living. So you're going to see this uh, actually used in a lot of forms of divination. Um, this is where people will have some sort of spiritual experience where they're either trying to connect with the dead or either they think that the dead has connected with them. I actually had this experience when I was working at the Billy Graham Library uh, where we had people that came to visit Billy Graham and his wife Ruth's grave and they thought that they could lay down on the grave and that they could talk to them and soak up some of their spiritual wisdom. We actually had to put out security guards so that they couldn't do that. There are people that really believe that they can talk to the dead and actually gain something from them. So that's spiritualism. Another is uh, sorcery or magic, and you might notice the K there, that's not a uh, typo. That's a way to distinguish from the more ordinary, what you might think of like magic tricks. So if you hired a magician for you know, a special event and he's doing sleight of hand tricks, that's not the same as this. We understand that is a, it's an actual trick. There's nothing supernatural about that. This is going to be calling on more supernatural practices, using things like charms and spells and rituals. Think uh, in your mind voodoo. So like a voodoo doll where you have something that looks like someone and as you do certain things to it, it affects that person. If anybody's ever seen the second Indiana Jones movie, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, so voodoo dolls, voodoo practices. Another form of the occult is witchcraft. And this is gonna be similar to sorcery in a lot of ways, except witchcraft is a little bit of an older occult practice. Witchcraft is essentially a nature religion. So if you uh, remember reading in parts of the Old Testament where it says that these pagan religions would go up and worship the uh, Baals or the Asherah poles, this is what they're talking about. It's, it's a nature religion uh, of witchcraft. And what they're doing is it's basically a, a, a religious practice where they go and they, they make uh, sacrifices to these different idols and these gods for like fertility. So if you want fertile crops, then you come worship these gods of the earth or the god of the sun in different ways. The, this practice is really popular in Middle Eastern cultures as well as Asian cultures and African cultures where it's very agricultural um, ecosystems. Um, and this is, this is one that we see a lot in um, kind of a more popular culture that's actually gaining ground, surprisingly enough, where witchcraft has become prominent um, in the younger generations as well. So it does have an influence in the world around us. And then getting to one of the more darker areas of the occult is Satanism. 
Now, Satanism is kind of twofold. There's, there's two ways that we can look at this and explain it. There's one form of Satanism, which you might know is the Church of Satan, which uh, if you've heard of that or seen that, that is actually a group that was founded by Anton LaVey, and they're actually not really religious. They are atheists. They founded the Church of Satan as basically a way to mock Christians. So they hate everything about Christianity, and they say, oh, you worship Christ? Well, we're going to worship his sworn enemy, which is Satan. So they really do it out of an ironic, mocking sort of way. The majority of those within the Church of Satan are agnostic or atheist and very militant towards Christians. So they don't really believe in the supernatural. They don't really believe in a cult. They do it more in a mocking sort of way. However, there is the other side of Satanism, which is what you might think of with rather demonic practices, people that actually do believe in Satan and actually do believe in his power and actually do try to wield that and use that to subvert the glory of God. These are people that uh, are very dark and, and twisted in their practices. A lot of times you might see this in the news where there's a satanic ritual happen, where there were human sacrifices made. It, it can get very dark very quickly. So that's the other side of Satanism. And then lastly, there's the rather broad kind of category of paranormal. Uh, this can be basically things that are just not easily understood or explained. These are things that go bump in the night, so to speak. Paranormal can kind of consist of anything that we might think of as supernatural or even like superstitious. This would also be classified as an occult practice. So these are different examples of it. So again, I want us to take us through scripture and see what does God's word have to say about the occult. Well, we see in Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23, you're probably familiar with when Saul went to try to consult uh, someone who could speak to the dead. And in Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 15, he says, For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And then he says, And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So what he's saying here is he's saying you have rejected the knowledge of God that has been given to you in the word of God. You've subverted that and you've gone to someone else for their secret knowledge to speak to the dead. We see how this uh, pursuit of divination undermines God's word. Ezra also warns against them in 2 Chronicles 33. He says, uh, speaking of um, the son of Hanan, he says that he used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Moses also warned against it. In fact, he gave specific commands not to involve ourselves with it. In Leviticus 19, he says, do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out. In Leviticus 20, he says, if a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, very strong language, he says, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Leviticus 20, um, verse 27, also says, a man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 through 14, says that there shall not be found among you anyone who practices divination. And whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. As for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Again, the nations around Israel at the time, if we think back, these are the ones that are following these pagan occult practices. And God said that he was gonna create a people, a holy nation that was to be set apart from these nations. They weren't to practice this. They were to show that they followed the one true God, Yahweh. 
John in the New Testament also warns against this in Revelation 18 and 21. In chapter 18, he says that all nations were deceived by sorcery. In chapter 21, he also goes on to list several different sins. He says, for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire. So he's pointing to this wide category, and within that he has sorcerers named. Paul also warns against this in Galatians. He too is listing this long list of sins and includes sorcery as one of the sins that goes against God. Those who practice these things shall not inherit the kingdom. Paul is pointing us to uh, the destruction that comes from following these evil things. Luke also warns against them in Acts 13. If you know the story of the magician, uh, his name was Bar-Jesus. And it actually goes on to say that his name, uh, his real name, Elimus, was, it, it was basically the magician. That was his name. He practiced this magic, and he wanted to do it for his own gain. And he was actually seeking to turn away the proconsul from the faith. But Saul, at that time Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit. There's that lie, that sense of mystery and deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Further on um, in Luke's account in Acts 19, he also talking about uh, a number of those who practiced magic arts were actually saved from that and brought to the faith, and they came and they burned their occult books and practices. Isaiah warns against this as well, where he says that we should not... Uh, inquire basically outside from God. We should not go to these necromancers or these sorcerers to figure out any secret knowledge. We should only seek our power from the Lord. Nahum also warns against the occultic practices as he calls, again, using strong language. He says, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. I just bring that up to show the, the strong language that the Bible has to say about this. So um, with college students, sometimes we, we field kind of random questions, and they've kind of asked, like, what do, you, what do you think about, you know, having a seance? Or what do you think about this? Not that they're interested in it, just curious. And, and a lot of times it's, well, obviously the Bible says that that is evil and not to be sought out. And furthermore, we don't need to seek this out. We have true knowledge that's been revealed to us through God's word. We don't need to do these things to try and speak to that which is not here. We have God who speaks to us through his word, and we can speak to him through prayer. So as we, as we start to close, what, what do we think about all this? What do we do with this? Why is this important? Again, I, I hope you can see in some ways that this, uh, this kind of overview of cults and the occult has influenced not only just the culture around us through media outlets, but even the church in some ways, not only in the way that those who claim to be Christians try to subvert us as Christians, but even in the way that the occult goes against us and our faith. But we shouldn't, like I said at the beginning, we shouldn't say, well, it's not important. I don't believe those things, so I don't need to worry about it. But at the same time, we don't need to be so worried of the occult practices in the world that we can't sleep peacefully at night. Because we have, what I said a second ago, we have the true revelation of truth in God's word. We see it and we know it ultimately in Jesus Christ. And we have hope that he has overcome the powers of Satan and the powers of evil in the world. He has risen from the grave showing that he has all authority and all power and not Satan and not his demons and his demonic influences in the world. 
to go back to Acts 19, I think that's actually one of the most powerful passages that we can look at as we take away uh, something to be learned from tonight. As it talks about those who used to practice these magic arts, used to be involved in the occult, used to be under the influence of the powers of Satan, and yet through the hope of the gospel, through the Holy Spirit giving them freedom from their sin and giving them faith to believe in Christ, that they have been freed from that. So much that they brought their books that they used to use for evil and burned them because they didn't need them anymore. I think that's the hope that we have, and that's the hope that we as Christians can share with those around us. So when we have people that come to us that are involved in some of these occult practices or maybe even involved in some of these cults themselves, we can take them to the source that we see where we have been given true revelation from God in his word, that we can use that and wield that as a way to win them to Christ through the gospel. So I hope we see the benefit and the influence of this and the way that we can actually use this for the glory of God through our lives. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, I thank you for our time tonight that we can study um, the things around us that we see as evil, that we see as um, an influence from Satan. But we're not moved to despair, but we're moved to um, compassion on those around us. And I pray that we would use this knowledge as an effective tool to win those to Christ, to point them to the true hope we have, that we would test things by your word, by the scriptures, that we would know it and that we would use it that we would open our mouths to share the good news of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and that your spirit would move to bring those from darkness into light and for the glory of Christ. And it's in his matchless and holy name that we pray. Amen.